listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube, and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play, or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections, what I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day. Welcome listeners and viewers. This is Daria Brown, and I am here today with Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Expert Training Leader, Colette Ryan, a return guest. She is an infant mental health specialist, a doctoral student in Fielding University's Infant and Early Childhood Development Program, and a parent coach at ICDL's DIR Home Program, which is a virtual DIR floor time coaching program. Welcome back, Colette. Hi, everybody. And we thought today we would discuss something that is always a little bit confusing for parents when they're new to floor time and even when they're uh get, they get to know floor time it's continues to be a bit confusing that is the functional emotional developmental capacities or that developmental ladder that we talk about in dir floor time those early foundational developmental capacities that help make that foundation upon which our kids grow and develop into academics and beyond so we're going to review the FEDCs, Functional Emotional Developmental Capacities, and we're going to talk about gauging our own capacities, which helps us interact with our children to support their capacities. So why don't we start right at the beginning, uh, Colette, do you want to just do a couple sentence overview of the early capacities before we go in one by one? The early capacities are those foundational things that we need in order to learn. And I think some more traditional models, they think that they need to immediately go into teaching and, and, and learning for individuals. But what I love about floor time is we know there's stuff that comes beforehand. Those early foundational developmental capacities, that's what allows us to learn. In those capacities, we learn basic executive functioning skills. And those executive functioning skills allow us to then learn later on. So I think for me, that's the big piece of this. Um, Gil Tippy always has a great way to describe it. These are the, this is foundational education. This is the piece that we all need in order to, 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 to learn. So, um, I think that's how I feel about these early capacities. Yeah, and it really develops through play in early childhood and in yep. neurotypical children, these capacity, these early six capacities that we focus on in floor time tend to be in place before neurotypical children get to kindergarten. Now that's not always the case, but generally that's how they develop. They develop in early infant and through toddlers and you know little kids start doing imaginary play and all of this stuff before they get into kindergarten and in our kids that develop differently and some that are on the spectrum um, including my son they develop much much slower 
and it's different for every child. That's why the I and the DIR model is individual differences. Every child has different um, constrictions in each of their capacities that we did a podcast with mm -hmm. Kathy Platzman about. Uh, and so let's go through what these developmental capacities are and we'll maybe we'll leave out today why our children uh, develop them slower and later. It, there's other podcasts I've done on individual differences, sensory processing profiles, uh, the reason these capacities get constricted for biological reasons, for sensory reasons, other reasons. So we, we won't get into that today, but we'll just talk about these capacities. First of all, the first one being self-regulation and interest in the world. So mm -hmm. tell us about that, Colette. And I think there's even something that comes before that. I think, I, you know, I, I lovingly call it capacity zero, being yes. safe, feeling safe, being in this, this environment that I can trust, that I can feel safe in. We need that before we go on to our developmental capacities. And the beautiful thing that we're, that we're all born with um, is something called attachment promoting behaviors. Babies fit perfectly right here on us and they smell good and they coo and they invite us into interactions. They're born with those things because they need someone to be their caregiver. They need someone, they need to entice someone into a relationship. So even from that very first relationship that kiddos are forming, it's helping them feel safe, feel trust in a trusted relationship. And from there, we can go on to being regulated. Being regulated is being able to be, stay calm, be able to focus, be open for interactions, be open for play, um, being able to take in everything that's going around on around us, kind of make sense of it within our body and then say, okay, I'm good. Let's have that interaction now. So I think about the podcast I did with Dr. Stephen Porges on polyvagal theory as that capacity zero, that sense of safety and, and how can you be regulated and interested in the world if you don't feel safe? If there was a fire right now behind me, I, I wouldn't feel safe to be regulated to have this conversation with you. No. <laughs> so it's, it's um, something that really is huge in autism because if children are overly sensitive to sounds and certain sounds just they they just can't calm down or feel safe because they feel threatened constantly then they can't feel safe to be regulated and and that's really the first step how can you expect a child to you know have interactions with you have a conversation have you know even if they're non-speaking gestural communications indicating what they their needs are and let alone academics, if they're constantly feeling threatened by their environment. Mm -hmm. And I think the important piece to remember is it's a perceived sense of safety. My perceived sense of safety is probably different from yours, Daria, and different from everyone around me. Um, if, if sounds overwhelm you, then your perceived sense of safety in loud places is that I'm in danger. And so I'm going to go into fight or flight. And I can, I can give you an example. Colette uh, has a pet dog and I'm terrified of all animals. 
-hmm. And if I were sitting in your home right now trying to do this interview, I would constantly be wondering, where's the dog? Is it about to jump on my lap? And mm -hmm. I'd be, I'd literally be like on edge the whole time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people often say, oh, oh, you're not comfortable with dogs. Okay. But they don't understand the extent to which I'm really uncomfortable around dogs, like to the point where I will not sit comfortably on a chair in someone's house. I will stay standing. Mm -hmm. I can't sit down because I'm terrified the dog's going to come up on me. <laughs> because your body is telling you you're in danger and you need to prepare for fight or flight. Absolutely. For me, it's frogs. I'm <laughs> just terrified of frogs. If I see a frog, I'm out of here. <laughs> I, I go into to flight if I see a frog. And imagine being in an environment where there are frogs all around me or dogs all around you. And then having someone say, now you have to sit and learn. Your cognitive load is all going to making sure you're safe. There's nothing left over for learning. And, you know, neither one of us are um, hardcore biological scientists or anything, but we can just make the point that whether these are learned fears or innate biological fears that we're born with, doesn't really matter. I mean, my fear of dogs, I don't know where it came from. I was never attacked by a dog. Um, other, you know, I can think about um, my son, you know, if he sees an insect or something, he may or may not have learned to be startled because when I see a spider, I'll be like, ah, hey, you know, calling, come get the spider, get the spider, you know, so that would be a learned response. Oh, mom sees that and gets scared, I should be scared too, um, versus something like the sound sensitivity, which might be a, a biological mm -hmm. auditory processing. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And, it, and, and Donald Winnicott told us many years ago that the first mirror for any child is their mother. Now, I would say their mother and father, <laughs> um, but he there's learned things about situations. Our children learn about a situation very often, either from that by those biological needs or by looking at mom. Oh, mom's afraid of this. I must be afraid of this. Mom's doing great around this. Oh, then I, this must be good and I'm okay. So we have our genetics at play. And then as I discussed with Dr. Kathy Platzman in the MI Neurodivergent Like My Child podcast, you have autistic parents who are sensitive or, or overwhelmed by things. And the ch child not only has the biological influence from the parents, but then that environmental impact as well. So there could be many things impacting that sense of safety, um, mm -hmm. which impacts how they can feel regulated and, and, you know, actually attend and then get to the second capacity, which is engaging and relating where I can get that gleam in my child's eye by like, you know, um, you were talking about a baby cooing and, you know, when you, when you lift up a baby, most people are like, oh, you know, making the face and the baby goes, ah, you know, and that's that engaging with each other, which yeah. continues throughout um, adulthood, although it might look different. Right. At our second capacity, if we feel safe and regulated, now we're able to engage with another person 
we're able to, as Dr. Greenspan always said, have that falling in love. I call it ooey gooey, having those relationships that feel good. And, and the interactions need to feel good on both sides. If you've taken a class with me, you've heard my story about the fact that I love Dave Matthews. Love Dave Matthews. My husband, not so much, but I dragged him to a Dave Matthews concert. We both had shared attention. We were, we were both looking at the same thing, but his experience with Dave Matthews was different from mine. When we went to see Elton John, we both love Elton John, so we had the same experience. So when we're in that engagement, we want both parties to feel ooey gooey, not just us as the neurotypical adult. We want more Elton John, less Dave Matthews. And in case parents are confused by that, like, wait a second, I thought we're engaging with each other and you're talking about engaging at a concert, we're talking about shared experience. So engaging with each other certainly, um, you know, involves, you know, maybe like you, you think of eye contact, but with our kids, sometimes it's just about sharing experience together. And, and in a past podcast, I've given the example of a few years back, um, the first time, well, it must've been a while ago, cause I've been in this house seven years since we moved from downtown Toronto condo into the house, we put up the Christmas tree for the first time. And my son and I, you know, I was trying to get him, showing him how to put on the, the ornaments on the tree. And um, now I forget my the details of my story, but it was some kind of cute ornament, or I don't know what it was, or we finished or whatever. And we had this knowing moment together with this glance and this smile. And it was just this non-speaking shared experience of, we did this and there's your train ornament that you love you know that that kind of knowing moment where it's a shared experience and and engaging doesn't necessarily have to be like we're staring at each other we're getting each other's attention and you know that kind of thing it's just this shared engagement of joy with each other Absolutely. And if you think of um, the podcast that you did with the wonderful Jackie Bartell about being versus doing, engagement, shared experience is just being together. We had a great time together. Wasn't it fun? And that knowing glance at each other that, that you were talking about, about that shared experience, this was so good, wasn't it? That's what we're looking for. And I want to point out too that um, I don't know how in depth we'll get into these FEDCs, the functional emotional developmental capacities here today, but what we look for as our children um, uh, master these capacities, they, they might, we talked about it in the constrictions podcast, they might start to develop through the capacities, but have some holes in the earlier uh, capacities and that we'll talk about strengthening those in terms of them being robust, not only with mom, but then with mom, dad, siblings, but then with also teacher, grandparents, strangers in it with different people and then in different environments. So 
it's robust when you're at home and then it's robust when you're at school and in the grocery store and other places. So like different environments with different people in different situations. And so what we'll include in that is while the child is in a negative emotional state, because sometimes you can have your capacities, you can be regulated and engaged when you're in a good mood, but when you're in a bad mood, it's out the window and you have a tantrum. And so I like to think of how my son now can stay engaged with me even when he's distressed mm -hmm. and so he'll still be able to be engaged so we're talking about shared joy shared experience but i also wanted to bring in the you know it, it might be sharing a negative experience together it might be a fearful experience like we're scared together but you're engaged with each other right and and, and i think of the first two capacities as the as the area where we need to think about attunement we need to be able to attune to different people, different environments. We need to support the individual um, through attunement to be able to handle those different environments, different situations, different people. And so knowing a profile of the individual that I'm with, I think is so important because that tells me what, what do I need to do to myself to be able to make it an ooey gooey interaction, one that we can share. Do I need to bring my affect down? And now we're in a, a beautiful shared experience. If I was too high, we wouldn't be able to have that with some individuals. So thinking about your attunement at each of these capacities is important, but I think those first two capacities, it's, it's vital almost that we need to attune. And I really like attunement because that's what my dissertation is on. So. I could talk about attunement all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, when when you become Dr. Colette Ryan, we will definitely do a podcast on <laughs> on attunement because I have a blog post on attunement that I'll link to in the blog. But mm. um, to have a podcast about it will be will be great, too. And I'll also refer people back to a, a couple of podcasts ago with Kashina on um, co-regulatory um, support for our children. And she talked a lot about attunement as well. So are you in your own head thinking of your own agenda while your child is distressed or are you able to tune into that emotional state that they're in and kind of match where they are and really empathize with them that's really what the attunement is about that that feeling um, of empathy and in the reading cues also i think there's a lot of cues that we read while we're in in that attunement piece and being able to read a cue that says, oh, when that individual curls their toe, it means they're starting to dysregulate. And so I've seen that cue, I've attuned to that cue, and, and I've taken a step back to reduce the sensory input that the individual is receiving. So I think it, it's so important that we become really good cue readers and cue senders, because a lot of the cues that our kiddos are gonna send are gonna be non-traditional cues. They know what it means and we have to figure out what it means. And I'll refer people to the, we did a whole podcast on cue reading as well, mm -hmm. uh, Colette and I. So that that is a really important thing. And you just reminded me just to stress again to parents that it's so easy to overlook these first two capacities. Mm -hmm. And they're the most important things of all. And when Colette is coaching parents in the home program, you know, you can, 
parents often come in and and they obviously love their children and they see the best in their children and they're so excited to tell us about all of the things their kids can do and then they might be stuck in how to do floor time and sometimes they're they're working at that capacity that they've seen their child meet when their children in that moment are not there they haven't um they're not engaging they're not regulated they're not engaging yet and how important it is to always come back to these first two capacities and capacity zero safety regulation and engagement attuning to the child and really being in that moment being as you said together before doing anything else uh, dr gordon newfeld is a, a vancouver psychologist who says collect before you direct. And I know there's other people that say variations of that. So um, he says the eyes, the nod, the smile. Now for our kids, it may or may not be the eyes, the nod, the smile, it might be different things, but just knowing that um, you're getting that engagement before going on to other things. And, and as adults, we tend to go in quite high in interactions with children. Think about the, the number of times that you've gone into an interaction with a kiddo and asked them a question. And if you're asking a question and expecting a WA, you know, if you're asking a WH question and expecting an answer, well, that's way up at capacity six. If you're with an individual and they're down at one and two, that, that ability to answer your WH question is not going to be there. And it's hard for parents to understand, like, why, why can't they answer, what is your name? Yeah. Why can't they answer, how was school today? Why can't they? It's a lot of processing and, and we'll get into that as we move through um, into the higher capacities, but let's go to the third capacity now, which is part of the, the early developmental capacities. Um, when we talk about the, these early six capacities, ICDL teaches certificate courses and that first course really focuses on the first three, the DIR 201. First four. First four focuses on those early ones and then the next certificate focuses on the higher capacity. So a lot of attention is paid to the, the first one. So the third one is having purposeful two-way communication. And this in neurotypical children happens before verbal language even starts. Absolutely. So this is all purposeful communication, which we gave the example of baby going, ah, ga, 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 and us going, oh, ooh. And you know, just those, you know, um, nonverbal, gestural, facial uh, expressions, um, tone of voice, like just all of that nonverbal affective reciprocal interactions that I'll, I'll link to a few podcasts on that as well. Yes. I think about the little one who puts their arms up to be picked up when they see somebody. Well, they're opening a circle with that individual. They're giving them a purposeful gesture that has intent and meaning behind it. When somebody points, it's a gesture and we all look to where it, it where we're all supposed to be looking. Um, thinking uh, uh, about uh, the nodding of our head. Why does that mean yes? Why is that the gesture for, for agreement? Well, it's because we've assigned it meaning. Shaking of our head, there's another gesture. 
when we lift our shoulders up, we know what it means because we've developed the meaning making for each one of the gestures that we use. Sometimes our kiddos haven't made meaning of all the gestures, but they've come up with some of their own. Maybe just an eye gaze. That, that can be what they do. A kick of the leg. There was a, a little one that I saw when I was over in Kiev who would kick his legs and that was how he would tell people he was happy. It's not a traditional cue, but it worked for him. And we were able to read that cue and figure out what it was that he wanted. And it was telling us he really liked what we were doing. And in order to get to this purposeful communication, again, it builds on regulation and engagement. So we want to, the collect before you direct kind of thing, we want to get that, you know, we want to know that our children are safe, regulated, engaged with us, and they can still be upset and be regulated. Like I'm thinking of my son who will be like, Mama, it's not working right now. Ah, help, help. What do I do? Help. And I'll say, oh, no, I wonder if the battery died. I don't know. Can you check? So he's distressed, but we're having back and forth purposeful communication, in this case, verbal. But um, that I, I just wanted to stress that it doesn't necessarily need to be positive emotions. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in this back and forth, we also you mentioned intent. So I wanted to touch on that. So um, I know in engaging autism, when I had read it early on, Dr. Greenspan talked about how when we're working on getting the back and forth communication, those circles of communication with our children, sometimes we are, well, to start off, we're the ones initiating, we're the ones initiating those circles of communication and trying to get a response from our child. And sometimes it may be about, um, saying, hmm, you know, I wonder this one or this one or this one or whatever it is, and having them make a choice and sometimes putting a ridiculous, silly choice in there. Um, do you want this to eat, which is some piece of food, or I don't know, and then pass them like something that you would never eat, and then they make a choice. And then by making choices, that gives them confidence in responding. And once they have confidence in responding, you'll get to the goal at FADC3, which is initiating. So we wanna eventually see them initiate uh, communication with us because we want them to be able to tell us if they're distressed or if they need something or you know, going forward in life, if you can't communicate with people what you need, it makes it really difficult. So we really wanna foster that those circles of communication back and forth. Mm. And doing it in a way that feels good and feels easy. So again, we're going to go back to attunement. If you're um, supporting an individual to open circles of communication, but you've asked them a question, again, not going to work. If your affect is too big for that individual to process, then you're, we're not going to get that initiation of circles of communication because, again, that cognitive load is all going to, I got to process this, I got to process it, and I don't have anything left over for the interaction. I think the one of the most fun things to do at this 
this particular capacity is experimenting with our affect. Don't be afraid to go over the top at this capacity. You're, you're gonna be nominated for an Oscar when this is done. You're gonna be going, Ooh, uh, 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 lots of affect to give meaning to the gestures that you're using. That meaning making piece is so important for an individual to know, okay, I have this, I have this gesture, but I don't know how to use it. What do I do with it? So when we go, whoa, I see it. Now the individual says, oh, when I do this, everybody looks where I'm pointing. That's what I'm supposed to do with this gesture. And I'll, I'll refer back to the meaning making podcast we did together. And I also did a podcast with Marilee Burgesson about um, words, action, affect. So yeah. you're pairing the word with an action and your affect. And that is what provides the meaning. Right. And, and we'll just, let's just touch on individual differences here. So my mm -hmm. son is upregulated to the nines at all times of the day, almost always upregulated, upregulated, upregulated. He might get that from his mom. <laughs> so, you know, when we're together, the two of us together, excitable, 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 we might get dysregulated just from being overly excited. So I might have to tone down my affect, <gasps> sweetheart. Hmm. Slowing way down, quieting way down, moving slower as well, which helps calm him down. Whereas if you have a child who's very, you know, just quiet and hard to arouse, you might need to be really excitable to get them up, get their energy up to that. I What's that thing that you show that has the levels of arousal or? The optimal arousal level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we want to get them in the middle. This, is, this end might be too high. This is too low. We want that optimal arousal level right in the middle. And, and, and I love that you suggested the slowing down we have some beautiful strategies that can support individuals at this capacity. And one of them is pacing. Bringing our pacing down allows for the individual to have more processing time. If we, if we think about the amount of sentences that we use when we're talking, uh, we use a lot of words. <laughs> Basically, we're talkers here in the U.S. And Sometimes if we use an entire sentence, our little ones are hearing the first word and the last word, but the stuff in the middle, they couldn't make sense of. And so using only the language that you need or that you know from your attunement of the individual that they can, they can handle that. Thinking about how many words we're using, thinking about the pacing of our words, the volume of our words, and, and what is best to the attunement that that individual needs in that moment from us. So I'm just thinking if I'm in a different country that speaks a different language and maybe I've taken a few 
lessons in that language and I go there and I hear people speaking and what jumps into my mind is Mexico because I've never taken Spanish. I know in the United States, people learn Spanish in school. In Canada here, we learn French. So I, I knew a bit of Spanish from watching Sesame Street on Detroit public television because I grew up across the border from Detroit. So mm -hmm. I knew a little bit of Spanish and go to Mexico and then the Spanish language is so quick. Whereas if they slow down, maybe I can take in and understand the gist of what's happening. And, and although that's not an exact parallel to what our kids are experiencing, if they have auditory processing, it might be something else that's you know different than just the speed, but just to help us imagine what it's like if someone's speaking complicated words. And, and now that my son's older, I'm understanding more um, his experience because I'll say things and he'll say, what's that mama? And he'll ask me about a particular word and I'll be like, oh, yeah, and I'll realize like, oh, that's a complicated word he hasn't heard before. And I, of course, can't think of an example right now, but you know, if he had no, he had no meaning for it. And you but he meaning for it, he did, but he would have meaning for um, like, say I said, um, uh, what's the, the snow trucks on the highway, um, like utility vehicle or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking of like a word that we might use for a snow truck. Um, oh, the city sweepers are out. What's that mama? Oh, like the big snow truck that takes the snow away, you know, and then he'll understand it. But if I'm just using words that that we use but that we haven't defined for our children um so i yes. i my son will point it out now whereas when they're little they won't point it out to us and we don't know that they're not catching everything right and and that gets um misconstrued as behavior that the individual is not listening they're not doing as they're told well if they don't have a meaning for what they're told to do then they're not going to be able to do it and the other piece of this that I think about too is the individuals that we have that have motor difficulties, motor planning and sequencing or gross motor or fine motor difficulties. And the pointing, the isolating their fingers for a point is not possible, but they can, maybe they can use their whole hand or they can just use an eye gaze. So I think that goes back to our, our ideas about cue reading and cue sending that in, in the, when there is a difficulty with that motor planning and sequencing piece, the child or the individual may have non-traditional cues, but they're still there and they're still communicating. And before we move on to the fourth capacity, I'll just touch on uh, children who are older, who are non-speaking and the importance of this, you know, back and forth Mm -hmm. effective reciprocal communication and, and the podcast with Gene Christian where he described it so well um, how you know we're really focusing on the affect because the affect even to this day my son being as verbal as he is at almost 13 years old in a month ah, is that he is always drawn in by affect if if I see him um, you know focused on his Lego or something and, and I'm trying to get his attention and, and he's not listening, I'll be like, oh, hey, guess what? And then right away, he'll look, the affect draws him in and you'll find in interactions with, with little kids, like the affect really draws them in. And affect, as uh, Amanda Kriegel pointed out in, in, 
I feel like this blog is going to be references back to so many podcasts now, but she pointed out on the podcast about genuine affect and affect doesn't necessarily mean loud, boisterous, big, but, you know, exaggerated, whether it's quiet or slow, like hand movements, uh, just exaggerated um, to help our children, as you said, make that meaning, tune in to, to us too. Um, to try and maintain that interaction with us. Mm -hmm. And I'm greedy when it comes to maintaining interactions. If I get one circle, I'm always going to try for two. And, and it might be in some interesting ways. I think we all, as floor timers, we leave our inhibitions at the door. And I, I support parents in those, that same thing. As Elsa says, let it go, let it go. Let yourself be silly. Let yourself use that affect. It feels funny at first, but then once you get used to it, there's, there's no better way to get an, an, an uh, individual interested in you than using a big affect. And everybody's affect's gonna look different. Uh, Every people who are extroverted and as you said, um, being the Oscar performance, will have no problem doing that. People who are introverted and feel more self-conscious will have a lot more difficulty doing that. But what you'll find is if you do something you enjoy, then it comes out more naturally. And makes me think of something else. If you're doing something in your native language, yes, that comes out more naturally, which is why Greenspan always said, don't force, um, yourself to speak English only with your children, speak your native language, because this is not about verbal language. This is about communication and that genuine affect comes out. I remember um, showing a mother how to do floor time and she tended to be quite, you know, stiff and rigid looking, trying to do floor time. And then she showed me she was Russian and she was singing. She said, oh, he likes this song. And she started to sing and all of a sudden she loosened up. She smiled. I hadn't seen her smile before. She smiled and she was having fun. And I was like, that's what you need to be doing with your child. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, your affect is in your, your native tongue. It's your mother language. And that's where that ooey gooey relationship is, is in, in, in our, um, in the language that has your affect to it. Now, because this is called gauging our developmental capacities, I'm going to jump ahead here for a second. This is what we're talking about. So when we're looking at these capacities in our children, we need to be aware of where we are ourselves. So mm -hmm. are we regulated? Are we engaged? Are we having that back and forth interaction? And, and that's where when I pointed out the mother all of a sudden was much more relaxed. Okay, now she was more regulated. Now she was engaged. She was able to share this experience with her child, more open to it, more able to be attuned, more comfortable in her own skin. Um, and that's where we have to gauge ourselves as well to match with our children. Yeah, the goodness of fit piece, as Dr. Greenspan would call it. And, and sometimes that means that um, we have to do things ourselves that are a little bit more difficult for us in order to get that good fit with the other person. Um, and one of the strategies that's coming to mind for me is um, 
the idea of the gift of time. I loved that strategy from Dr. Greenspan, where we're supplying the gift of time for an individual. It, we process really fast as neurotypical adults. Things go in and out, in and out. We take in the information, we send out a response. We take it in, we send out a response. And it just goes back and forth. But for some individuals, that's really hard to do. They take a long time to take in the information and then they have to process it. And then their body or their brain sends out a reaction to it. Some individuals need longer periods of time with gesturing. And so before we send out our next gesture to an individual, provide them with the gift of time so that they have more time to process to get out their own response. And that can be difficult, I think, for us as adults, because if the child doesn't answer us or the individual doesn't answer us right away, we think we have to ask the question again. We might ask it louder. We might get closer to them. And now their sensory system may become overwhelmed and they're not able to answer us at all. So thinking about the gift of time as a strategy at this capacity and um, capacity four, I think is important for us also. So on that note, let's pause and come back for part two next week because we've got so much more to cover. It's such a rich topic. So we'll get into the higher capacities next time and we'll get into a bit about how we gauge our own capacities in meeting our children where they are developmentally. So thank you, Colette. And um, I can't wait for part two. Thanks. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the parents menu at ICDL.com, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services, and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home, taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship to promote and support their developmental potential.